This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Kinship United, a nonprofit organization rescuing orphans from trafficking, slavery, and death, and restoring their childhoods in Christ for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can help an orphan, please visit kinshipunited.org today. It's Wednesday, February 20th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, David Bailey joins us to talk about public apologies. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity State, and I'm with my co-host, Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief here. Happy winter morning. Good to be here, Mark. I had an interesting encounter uh, in downtown Wheaton today. It's actually colder than it was yesterday and previous days, about 10 degrees, like it was 13 this morning. And yet he said to me, boy, it's nice that it's warmer today. (laughs) So it's all relative, I guess. Yeah, I actually wasn't sure if I was going to bike in this morning, and then I did bike past the thermostat that said 13. I was like... Usually this is below what I will bike in, but... It but if there's no bad. wind, yes. there's, there's hardly a difference between 25 and 10, for example. If there's no wind. Yeah. As soon as you put wind in the factor, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Might as well just die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I thought I would actually kind of front load the show with a little bit of news about the show that is kind of exciting for some people out there. And that is that we are going to start doing transcripts of our conversations. So we have to, I have to watch what I say now because it will be, it'll be in print now besides. You will now be able to use Google to search it. Okay. Yeah. I also think it's a little scary too, but FYI to people, it's going to be just the part of the conversation where we are speaking with our guests. So if you are still looking for precious moments. Okay. So when you're mocking me, that won't be included in the transcript. Unless I mock you during, yeah. Okay. Actually, no, we'll just, for professionalism purposes, we'll just be leaving that too. Okay. (laughs) So basically, this is for people who may be trying to look for a quote that they heard on the show or recall something that we said. We really hope it doesn't discourage all of you listeners from listening to the actual show, because I suge- as I suggested a couple of seconds ago, you will also miss precious moments if you do that, which I know is really the reason The highlight why. of the show, exactly. Exactly. So if you are looking for the transcript, you can find them basically in every link that we're going to be doing. For the show from now on on the Christianity Today website. So if you're ever reading the article that we write up that has the podcast and that has some show information, that's where you'll find the transcripts. The actual website where you can find all of the Quick to Listen back episodes and from now on the Quick to Listen back episodes and the transcripts is ChristianityToday.com slash CT slash podcast slash Quick to Listen. And Quick to Listen has hyphens in between it. So I will just repeat that one more time to everyone. It's christianitytoday.com slash ct slash podcast slash quick to listen. All right. Please tell us about our guest. Our guest is David Bailey. He is the executive director of Arabon, which 
describes itself on their website. They say, uh, Araban means a foretaste of what is to come. Uh, the organization believes that the church should be a foretaste of a reconciled heaven to our divided world, and they equip communities to engage effectively in reconciliation. Uh, he's also executive producer of Urban Doxology, which is a worship project to uh, exalt Jesus, justice, and reconciliation. So you can tell what David's life is about and why he's such a good person to have on our show. Hey, David. Hey, how y'all doing? Glad to be here. Are you indeed the perfect person to be on our show? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that, but I, you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, we have we have a bias at Christianity Today for people who are into reconciliation. We think that's a pretty crucial work to be involved in these days, not just racially, but in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of my things is that a lot of people say that we do racial reconciliation, and we actually really refrain from it. One, using that term for a few reasons, but one is is that as Christians, you know, we're just called to be in the ministry of reconciliation, and we acknowledge that the world is broken, and that we need to be part of the solution of, of, of partnering with Jesus to bring some healing and some mending to that brokenness. And so uh, our approach as Christians should always be towards uh, reconciliation, both with God and with one another. I'm really excited about having you on here because I can definitely think of some things that, you know, just times where you're like, does that message actually apply to this situation? You know? Yeah. So I hope we can go there a little bit in our discussion today. Definitely. All right. So last week, the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News published a three-part investigation into the scope of sex abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Several days later, the head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary had an announcement. Al Mohler wanted to apologize for the role that he played in protecting his friend, former pastor C.J. Mahaney, after he was accused of covering up a sex abuse scandal at his church. In an 850-word statement, Mohler acknowledged his role in supporting Mahaney, even as questions arose about Mahaney's involvement in this particular situation. Mohler then expressed regret for his actions and spoke specifically about where he believed he had fallen short. Like many public apologies today, Mohler's drew a mixed reaction. There were some people who were frustrated about the length of time it took for him to acknowledge his mistakes. There were others who were encouraged by the change of heart from a man whom it seemed might never change his mind on this issue. Each week, it seems that there's a new public figure whom we're demanding a public apology. So we've seen this with the Me Too movement, obviously, and in David's home state of Virginia, we've seen multiple top white state politicians ask for forgiveness in recent weeks after it was revealed that they had worn blackface. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to talk about public apologies and public repentance. In a pluralistic world, what can the church offer our country about how to apologize and atone well? I'm really excited to get into all of this today because I have been thinking about this so much off the show, and so it's great to bring these conversations onto the show where I can kind of process more of my feelings about all of this. And so, Mark, I I did want to just get your sense I think you read Mueller's apology. I know we're not going to spend that much time talking about this particular circumstance of the Sovereign Grace Ministries abuse scandal, and but I, I do want to know what you thought when you read what he had to say last week. I, w- I was positively impressed because uh, Al Mueller does uh, impress one as a person who you can either consider stubborn or uh, a man of conviction who will not easily budge after he's made a decision. And for him to budge on this issue suggests that he is a person who really is open to the evidence and wants to do the right thing as a Christian man. Uh, the fact that it came, some people feel it came late, uh, to be honest, 
that doesn't concern me as much as the fact that he did it. I just think some of us are just stupid. I mean, I know I've taken some months or maybe even years to apologize to my wife for some things. Our hardness of heart knows no bounds. So the fact that it was too late, I'm sorry that it was, but the change of heart and the willingness to own up, I can only admire that. You know, it's weird, right? Because this public apology is kind of to us and not to us. This is kind of something I want to get into, right? When Uh we are talking about this on the show, like, it's weird to be like, Mark, what is your reaction to an apology that's like maybe not yeah. to you? It wasn't to me for any, no, no, I don't think, it's a, it was an apology to the victims. So. But but still, it can have an emotional impact, even though it's like not necessarily yeah. to you yeah. and me, right? Which is something interesting, right? So when we're yeah. like judging someone's a public apology to be like, this is how it resonated. But that's because it's like, it is a sign and a form of leadership, right? Or it can be, depending on how like they actually right. land. And as a, as a Christian, you, you see other people in dispute, and it does... For me, it warms my heart when one side or the other initiates a reconciling conversation by saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, I, I felt a positive effect towards it as someone who is obviously not being apologized to in this. There's this one graph that I just wanted to read that I thought was a little bit more on the powerful end for me, where he says, I wish I had spoke, spoken more forcefully. I should have been very clear about insisting on an independent, credible third party investigation right from the start. These allegations rose. I should have said nothing until I heard from the survivors who are making those allegations. I should have sought advice and counsel of agencies and authorities and experts who were even then on the front lines of dealing with these kinds of allegations. To me, that is like specific ways in which he's acknowledging that he fell short. Yeah. The fact that saying, he was so specific instead of just generic was made it ever more stronger for me. Which yeah. to me, I think the, the specificity of saying like, here's how I know that I, I am aware that I let you down is part of where apologies can end up being like feeling really powerful though i will say again as someone who is not being apologized to in this thing everyone's going to have different reactions about like oh this was apologized and noted or this was not included in what that was um but for us who are kind of outsiders as opposed you know we follow the case obviously but i don't know david would you like to kind of give us your sense of what you made of this apology too as someone who is not you know directly being apologized to in it I would even step back a little further and just can we talk a little bit about just the context that we live in now. You know, I think we live in an age of social media where you can be crucified at any moment for any sin and very few situations that kind of hit the social media hysteria allows people the ability to confess and repent of wrongdoing. And we just live in a, a, a very low margin for error time. I think the church could be a gift in this time, and in many ways, because to be Christian means that uh, we acknowledge that there's only one Jesus, and everybody else is imperfect, you know? And um, so I think the practice of confession actually admits that. But I think there's a challenge that we have in Christian community, and that is that in Christian community, you can kind of confess almost every kind of sin except two major sins, and that's one sexual sin— and the other one is um, racism. Like, like you can kind of say in general, like I struggle with lust, but you can't really say specifically, here are my uh, um, sins. And I, I think we got to create environments in the Christian community where people can confess their struggles and their sins and get, and get help. And even when um, we as leaders make mistakes, that we aren't people that continue to project the sense of uh, perfection, but 
we as Christian leaders are the ones who are first to confess and repent. And that's something that I really try to practice as a leader. And in our church community, as uh, Christian leaders, we we really, really try to engage in that. And so I think the more that we in Christian community can practice a culture of confession and not have to uh, project a culture of perfection, then this could not be an anomaly, but be something that, like, yeah, it's, it's okay not to be perfect all the time and to make mistakes and to try to repent and make a change from that. I want to talk about, like, the actual structure of public apologies. You know, what would you say makes it really hard besides social media, but I'm talking about the actual, like, words that people are saying? What makes it really hard to do a good public apology? I mean, this is old school, but I love it, man. I think um, Peacemakers has a really great, the seven A's of apologies, and that's address everyone involved, you know, all the who's been affected by this, avoid um, if, but, or maybe statements. So, you know, try not to excuse your wrongdoings, admit specifically both an attitude and actions, uh, acknowledge the hurt. So that means express sorrow for the hurting uh, people that you actually hurt. Accept the consequences, such as, you know, trying to make restitution uh, or, or, or not expecting that people forgive you, um, alter uh, your behavior so you actually, like, change your attitudes and your actions, and ask for forgiveness, you know. When I have to make apologies, I try to just, like, literally pull out those seven A's and and try to to put those things into practice. Um, you know, I think in, a, in just such a highly public profile kind of space, you know, there's always going to be somebody that's going to critique what you do. You didn't do enough of this or you or you said that or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I I think we just don't practice great apologies in general. And so then when you have to do it in public, I mean, it's almost like you got to hit a three-point shot when you're not used to um, <laughs> making jumpers, you know? I, I think the point about the way I frame it is uh, can can I make the apology and say no excuses? Because I notice how hard it is to do that. It's just so hard to say, I'm sorry, but I'm so tempted to say, but you need to understand what I was going through, or you need to understand the circumstances. And yeah, people probably do need to understand the full picture, but an apology means, despite all that, I shouldn't have done what I did. So that's really irrelevant at this point. Yeah, and, and it's also kind of like, really, tough, particularly in this particular situation, because you know, when you start to do the speaker circuit and, you know, you publish things or produce things that people notice and you end up making these friends, these, these friends at conferences and you make these friends that sometimes you go in and, in and out of each other's house. And when your friends end up being in the paper for something that's wrong or in the media for something that is messed up, you know, there's two versions. There's like three versions of them. It's the public persona. It's the behind the scenes person that you, you know, and it could be the thing that you know, the dark secret or whatever the case may be. And you don't know that part about them. You know the person that you're engaging with. And so it's it's challenging because a lot of times we put pressure on leaders to make a statement about something and to say something. And sometimes you should say stuff, sometimes you shouldn't. And it's just really hard of knowing what to say, when to say it, what's true, what's not true. And so I, I could see, you know, Moeller in his, in his space, you know, make an excuse for it. Yeah, well, not make an excuse, but just, I, I just can see how that, the challenge of the, the complexities of that. But the reality of it is, is that there's a lot of hurting people, you know, and I think 
when we can kind of appeal to the humanity of one another and just try to put ourselves in all of the different seats, you know, maybe that can kind of help us. I think what what you're describing, uh, I've read about elsewhere, loyalty is not considered as high a virtue these days as it has in in previous ages. And one of the things a person, uh, when Moeller wants to come to the aid of C.J. Mahaney, one of his one of the virtues he's struggling with is loyalty. He wants to be loyal to his friend. And you all, you're weighing that loyalty to a friend against new information that's coming in. And like you just described, it makes it very difficult to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if anyone wants to chime in more on that, because I would agree that that is a that is a competing priority between trying to understand how to support your friend, especially if your friend is vehemently denying these particular things, um, while also being sensitive to what these accusers, you know, whatever they're accusing this particular person of doing, are saying as well, you know, and trying to be actually open-minded and into those investigations. As someone who has not necessarily been put in that situation, I feel like, (laughs) yeah, it's always easier on the outside. (laughs) There's two things that I often say to my team and um, and kind of my community. I'm saying like, hey, I don't I don't have to be Jesus and I don't have to be Michael Jordan, you know. And like, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't a Michael Jordan of everything, you know. And so, but the, the challenge of a lot of times the Christian leadership in our culture is that like a pastor or a theologian or a public speaker, there's this pressure to always have to be the Michael Jordan the expert of everything, you know. And I. You know, I got a few things that have some level of expertise in and and not a lot. And even my level of expertise isn't super deep. You know, I just know my little tools and tricks and things that I spend time in. And and I'll try to speak with some level of authority in that area. But outside of that, I don't have to own all the, all the things. And so when something kind of like steps out, you know, I mean, like part of the reason why I could have this conversation is because when you're practicing the work of reconciliation, you got to know how to be um, a person that knows how to make apologies. You know, you got to be a person that says, hey, you know, I'm stuff is messed up, both not just out there, but also inside here. And I mess up and I do things in apologies. So uh, there's a certain level of making apologies where I feel a little bit of expertise in because of the, the work that I, um, I do. But a lot of times as a Christian leader, you're just asked about, Stuff is like Me Too and race and uh, uh, um, uh, policy and and education and healthcare. I mean, it's just all types of things that you have to have an opinion about everything. And I think we, if it's okay to say like, "Hey, I I just don't know," you know, uh, or this thing came out about my friend, and you know, I just I don't know the person in at that particular way, but it could be true. It might not be true. And there's some experts that can kind of figure that out. Right now, I'm going to just try to be as Christian in the situation as I know how to be. I mean, I just feel like we could kind of create more of a, a culture where we can, it could be, that could be okay. Yeah, a culture in which we can admit we're inadequate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would be nice. Yeah. So I don't, we don't have to get too much into Virginia state politics, David, but, you know, as someone who has watched some of your own public officials in recent weeks have to deliver public apologies, we were talking about what makes them so hard. When, you, when you're watching these leaders um, publicly apologize, do you think it is just, you know, their public apologies are falling short maybe because they've 
haven't had practiced apologizing or because they do feel a strong sense of pride or defensiveness with regards to this or there's just blind spots? What what is going through your head when you're hearing someone's apology fall short as to why it is falling short? I mean, we've had a lot going on here in Virginia. And this is the 400-year anniversary of our the first enslaved African uh, to come to the colonial uh, uh, states, which eventually became the United States of America, right here in Jamestown, Virginia. And so over the last year, I've been working with the former governor, Bob McDonald, to begin to do some more education about race, slavery, segregation, and, and, and how we can engage in reconciliation. And Governor Northam, like two weeks prior to all the stuff hit the news, we all did a press conference together where he proclaimed this year, 2019, as the year of reconciliation and civility. And he made a commitment to do the slave trail walk, and, and we're, we're getting the, the state legisl- legislators to read the color of law together and, and doing stuff in, in the business sector, the education sector, and the faith community. And so, you know, that press conference was two weeks prior to the whole yearbook uh, scandal coming out. And... You know, um, there's an old church deacon that told me, David, bad news travels faster than good news. And so, I, you know, when I think about, you know, Governor, Governor Northam, he legitimately was all ears and all board and doing whatever he could do in his role as governor to kind of work with reconciliation efforts. So I think part of what's what's hard for him is uh, one that, you know, he he was really trying to he, he was trying to work on some reconciliation and then he's being kind of cast as either racist or ignorant uh, or just whatever this blackface situation just really overshadowed a lot of his his uh, not just only good intentions but actually actions that he's been putting towards so you know i from a human perspective i get to see and get that you know um i also think too you know when you're in a public there's a lot of sacrifice and there's a lot of hard work that's been put in to be and in the place of a governor like that, and he just really literally kind of just got started, you know? And so to have to leave and, and like, over something uh, something stupid he did 35 years ago is challenging. And so I, what I, what I kind of saw him doing was, like, hey, how can I kind of maintain the power that I have in the midst of this situation, you know? And, um, you know, it's, it's really tough, complicated stuff, you know? I get on his side. I also get it that there's a lot of people who are trying to find atonement and, and trying to get racial justice by him resigning because it's like, oh, I'm not as racist as he is, so let me do that. And there's other people that are just exhausted by the poison of systemic racism, and it's just like, man, we got to have a zero tolerance. And so just in that environment, I mean, it's just a very, very hard environment to say I messed up. Um, it's a hard environment to know even how do you move forward in a really healthy way. So it's it's been really complex here in Virginia and the nation. We have a term in English called demanding an apology, right? I think that's an interesting expression to to use. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, aggressive, assertive to, to say demand an apology. And, and so oftentimes when we do see some sort of public personality mess up, you know, you'll read something in a news report or a headline about whatever community or another demanding an apology. But I'm curious, David, in your experience, is that really what we want from people that we feel betrayed by or let down by? Or is do we have some other type of visceral emotion that we're feeling as well? With your leaders, any kind of leadership, I think people want to know 
if something's wrong, do you see it? And are you going to do something about it? Are you going to do the right thing? Leadership is is oftentimes um, moving on the rate of the currency of trust. And I, I think a demand for an apology is kind of a thing of like, hey, can I trust you again? Are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to be in that space? And, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that language, I think, is a very interesting thing because if somebody could demand something and I just do it because you're demanding it, it doesn't necessarily mean that I, I believe it. But I think kind of the thing behind the thing is, it's like, hey, I, I want to trust in you. I, I want you to right some wrongs. You know, I want you to do something about this. I mean, that's what leadership is about. The only way I could see true leadership moving forward is to follow the model of Jesus, who always kind of went low in order to empower other people, was willing to die, willing to sacrifice uh, for the sake of others. And so, you know, hopefully we're the kind of leaders as Christian leaders that don't even require people to demand apologies. But before people, like when people find out about it, or even before people find out about it, we're we're like the first to kind of confess and say, hey, I messed up. And here's the specifics, you know, the the seven A's and, and, and I'm going to try to to, to correct this this wrong. Yeah, it, it seems sometimes that, you know, even though we do say, though, that we want an apology, what we actually want is for that person to hurt, too, you know? Yeah. Or to be in pain or to somehow suffer, you know, or to be punished, right? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't get the sense that people are just satiated by someone who acknowledges, even if they did what's wrong. Now, I, won't, I will say we don't often really get you know, these apologies that might fit these like seven A's that you talked about, right? But it does it does seem that people want some sort of punishment at the end in addition to that. Yeah. And, and I think part of the reason is, is because there's a lot of people who have been hurt and victims. I mean, we live in a brutal world. You know, we live in a world that has a lot of suffering. You know, the psalmist talks about this on the regular. It seems like the wicked get away with it, you know. And I think part of the deal of which what's really great about Jesus is that there will be an ultimate judgment day, but in between that, we know that Jesus has come and suffered with us. And Jesus has said, Hey, Christians, that's what you're called to do is to kind of mourn with those and mourn. You know, those promises of God books, you know, that they sell at Christian bookstores, one of the promises that you never see is that uh you will suffer. <laughs> you know, that's a promise. <laughs> that's there. <laughs> But what's great about that promise is that God will be with you and that God is a God of comfort. And so I just feel like that's a piece that we just kind of like, I think folks are looking for and we have to model, particularly in this area of like, I think there's a long reckoning that we have with women, with the sexual abuse stuff and just the patriarchy and stuff that's kind of come out of that that's been really unhealthy, you know, in areas of race and class. You know, there's been a lot of abuse in a, a long period of time, and we're we're in a point in history where women are just as educated and or more educated than men and people of color, just as and or more educated than um, white people. And now we're having to be like, oh, we're really are equals, like what the Bible has said for many years, like we could actually see this in our face. And so I think there's an adjustment that we're having to make. That's kind of bumpy right now. Let me let me pursue one line of thinking here in terms of Jesus' forgiveness of our sins. There do seem to be two models 
I'm, I'm certainly oversimplifying this, and the biblical scholars are going to nail me for this, but let's just say this is my impression. <laughs> the Mark Galley interpretation. <laughs> so we have the model of Jesus uh, and the New Testament in which the very act of apology is an act of repentance, and it confers forgiveness on us. No man's beyond that necessarily. Nobody believes we should ask Jesus for a forgiveness and then go do 10 years of penance working in the salt mines or anything. It's a done deal after we repent. But in the, in the Old Testament, we have lots of examples where there is a repentance and then there's making amends or doing some heroic act to show that you're really sorry. We also see that much in uh, much of the church's history. So when we are expecting an apology from a pastor or a public figure about some malfeasance, is it right for us to expect amends? Is that a different arena that makes amends necessary in order for people to trust us again? Or should we be willing to forgive with just the act of apology? What's your take on that? That's a very complex question, I know, and you only have, you know, five minutes to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think there's two things. I think one, understand, just for people who are victims, um, forgiveness is a gift for the victim. I heard somebody say the other day like this, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the person, uh, your perpetrator dies, you know? And when we practice unforgiveness, like that's the one, it kills us, you know? So the actual act of forgiveness is a gift to the victim. If you're the person who is the perpetrator, the apology, the atonement, the repentance, all of that is a gift to you, you know? And that aspect of it is, is this aspect of making repair for the uh, uh, um, sins that you committed. I mean, like, think about, like, what Zacchaeus, when he finally came to Revelation about the extortion that he was doing. You think about Zacchaeus, when he actually came to Revelation on the um, extortion that he was doing, he was willing to make repair, reparations for his for his sins um, that he was committing over a period of time. And it was pretty radical. So if you're the victim, there is this aspect of justice that is very reasonable and is very human and very reasonable to do. And I think from a Christian perspective, like God has promised that God sees all and that God is the judge of all, and there will eventually be equity. And I think whether we get on this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, we can have confidence in that, but the gift is, is going to be forgiveness from the victim standpoint. If you're the perpetrator, it is a, it's, it's the job as a perpetrator to ask for forgiveness, to apologize, engage for repair, and then know if somebody forgives you, that's a gift of grace that somebody's extended to you. The sincerity of that is probably signaled by your willingness to go, now, now what can I do to make amends to make not to make the forgiveness happen, but to kind of cement it in some sense, or to to deal with the real consequence. I think most of us would agree that the ideal situation, if someone were to come and murder my wife, uh, that I would be called upon to forgive that person, but I still uh, would be called upon to press charges to make sure that he understands the consequences of his actions and that he needs to go to jail. I'll be the first to admit, I don't think I could forgive a person for doing that. It would have to be a special grace of God to come into my heart, but uh, I'd be really good at pressing charges. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and, and I definitely, particularly in the type of things that we're talking about right now, I think that's really, really important to understand like what the, the spiritual significance 
of forgiveness is and, and kind of working out that kind of in your own with a counselor and, and therapist and, and, you know, trusted friends and God and all that kind of activity. And then there's this whole other aspect of just, we need to work in justice. I mean, like there's an aspect of justice that's really important. Like you, you can't let perpetrators continue to go and kind of keep on going unrepentant, you know, and that's, that's his own set of challenges in and of itself. And so, I mean, these are, we're messy people. There's some really complicated, this is really, really complicated stuff. And I think this kind of gets to the root of what makes public apologies really tough is because in written statements and public kind of apologies to specific people, but then everybody in the public square, the nuance and complexities of human relationships makes it really hard to kind of check all the boxes of what ought to be. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. I recently spoke with David Kern from Libromania. So, David, there are some other book podcasts out there, obviously. Sure, and yeah. I'm curious what it is that sets Libromania apart from those other podcasts. These writers, you know, writing is a difficult thing. It takes a lot of courage to put something that you've written out there for people. So we honor writers and hear from them about how you kind of manufacture that courage or at least enough courage to submit something yeah but we, when we were joking around about it we were kind of saying can we talk about the nerd stuff but like in a sort of semi-highbrow way you know right so both of those things we wanted to be able to honor writers and talk to them but also talk about the fun stuff the kind of nerdy bookish stuff but do that in a way that that takes it seriously but not too seriously <laughs> for more information go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. You know, Mark, it was interesting that you talked about, like, you, you chose a specific example that was, like, a criminal offense, right? In right, our criminal right. justice system, you can get sent to jail. You'll probably get sent to jail if you murder someone, right? It's weird because, obviously, like, jail is a human invention that we've created. And in some ways, it kind of does some of the hard work for us because now you don't have to see that person again. Right. I mean, some of the stuff is really messy when it comes to other public apologies because you will see that person again. Right. But here we've created this thing where like you can put this person, quote unquote, away. Right. And you don't have to think about them all the time or ask yourself how you're going to show love to that person on an active basis or sit in a place that's really uncomfortable with them. And part of what I've been encouraged by when I've seen more conversations about restorative justice is that they recognize that there's something that's kind of missing when we don't actually have that continuing of the relationship that goes on. You know, that this idea of someone wronging us and then them just having been cut out of our life forever is actually not necessarily 
I don't even, I would say like all that we can do as humans, we can do, we're capable of doing so much more with how we, we end up relating to people who have really harshly offended us um, that we can't just p- put people in prison for. No, that's so. a good point. I do admire the people who, there are some situations where something criminal has been done and because of the massive scale of it, there's nothing that can be done judicially. So that would have happened in Rwanda. There would just be too many people to throw into jail. They didn't have enough jails. So people had to figure out how to continue to work together. And some of those stories are just utterly remarkable to me, and I don't identify with them in the least. And I admire the gift of the Holy Spirit has given some people to work alongside people who have murdered their whole family. That's just... That's unfathomable. That's unfathomable. I, the Lord would have to do a miracle in my heart to make that happen to me, and I'm so grateful for their witness. So, David, as Christians and as people who want to hold our public figures slash celebrities slash politicians accountable, are we required to accept every apology? As Christians, everybody doesn't have the same level of accountability in a way. So this is what I mean by this. There's one assumption because we live in a democratic society. If we were in first century Rome at the early church, We're not holding the the, um, Caesar or the emperor accountable. The first people that we hold accountable really should be the folks that we're in covenant Christian community together. And I think as Christians, I think the more that we could, we could, we could do this. And so I think the brothers and sisters that for Al Mohler or Northam or whomever, like, I feel like those are the ones that, those are the first ones that should hold people accountable. And, and, And my life, it's the people that I'm in church with, it's the people that I'm um, a spiritual family with. And so I think that's that should be the norm in Christian community. I do think there are come times and places in the public square because where much is given, much more is required. We live in a country that we do get a chance to speak into the political process and we do get a chance to speak to people. And I think there's a difference in holding Christians accountable, but it's also important that we don't try to hold non-Christians to the same accountability as being Christians. We can see that sometimes in a public square also, where Christians want to act, have non-Christians act like Christians. I think we need to be wise and, and try to be as biblical as we know how to be in this area. And I feel like it goes from the, your spiritual family, your covenant Christian community that you're in church with first, and I think it kind of goes out in the, the family of faith. And then in the, in the, in the non-Christian space, I mean, the question I'm going to ask when I deal with non-Christians is like, what would be the best public way to um, bring witness to somebody who's not naming the name of Jesus. Um, Have you ever been in situations, David, where you felt like community leaders, maybe, or other people that you knew were were urging you to forgive someone, and you didn't necessarily feel ready for that moment, and that maybe that was an appropriate thing that they were saying? Like, yeah, you should, you know, like, as your brother and sister in Christ, I really think it is important that you forgive someone. And have you ever been in a situation where you felt like it was maybe inappropriate or too soon for them to kind of urge that. We, we don't like tension, you know, and so sometimes what people are asking for forgiveness because they want to relieve attention. And it's really not about true reconciliation. It's about re- resolving tension. I think in situations like that, we shouldn't do an, a, an apology. And I also think there are times where people have to work through their own processes and things of that nature. So, I mean, I know I've learned this with my relationship with my wife, you know, there's some wounds that I've caused very deeply that she needs some time and space. And I've therefore also learned with my staff and 
and the people in Urban Astrology where I'm like, man, you know what? I really messed up on this. I apologize. You might need some space and time to like truly give us sincere forgiveness or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's not going to be a genuine interaction if I force your hand to do this. So it needs to be some space. And so I, I, I need it's, the onus is on me to live in attention in the meanwhile. So we live in a country that it's kind of obsessed with comeback stories. Um, but uh-huh. as I'm sure you're aware, it can often seem like, you know, the comeback story is already set in motion before this person who has offended other people has actually made amends. Let's assume for the sake of this example, that this person is not going to end up in prison or jailed for what they did. What does making amends look like and how long should it take before this person returns to ministry, you know, maybe if they're a pastor who's fallen in some way, or entertainment or politics? Or or is that the kind of the wrong question to be asking for this? Yeah, I mean, I think timing, like, how long is enough, you know? Um, yes, exactly. You know, like, it's 35 years enough time, you know? Mm-hmm. Or is it like, you know, one year? Really, to be honest, like, in order for me to do this kind of work, you know, I really, really realize how not being judgmental is very helpful. If I'm a, if I'm in my position as an elder at my church, then those are the kind of questions that we ask with people that were that are in the restoration process. They shouldn't rep, taking rep, But if I'm not somebody's elder, somebody's spiritual authority, or somebody's, you know, Barnabas or brother or sister that's walking alongside them, then I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, think about, you know, Paul when he was Saul. I mean, he like literally, he had a re-enter. You talking about re-entry with people he literally <laughs> killed, you know, and and it took some time to probably build up that trust, you know? I don't know. I think those are things that have to be discerned in the community and things that have to be discerned by the Spirit. Yeah, that, that part about it being, how, or how long should it take, I feel like part of the, the struggle that I have with that one is who gets to decide how long is too long, right? I mean, are we talking about how long did someone who betrayed the church get to come back to the church? You know, well, guess what? I guess there's going to be a lot of different feelings and opinions about how long that should be, right? But someone's making that decision, and then other people in the community are the ones that are, you know, maybe whose voices weren't solicited on that, right? Um, I also don't necessarily think that we should wait until the last person forgives someone before they come back. When we're talking about this, all I do is think about the people, the pastors who had especially sexual malfeasance who leave their church, and within a month or two, they're pastoring another church somewhere else. I mean, most of us look at that and go, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Get get real. I mean, you've got issues to deal with, buddy. There's no way you could have handled them in a month and a half. Also, there are other jobs. Yeah, it isn't like it's the only job you can do in the world. That's the part that's, like, confusing to me the most. Like, I don't want you to not have a job, but why is the job that you're going to be doing going back into ministry? All right. Well, that's that's a whole topic. Obviously, obviously, some resentment here. Confusion. I don't know, David. Do you have something that you want to convict me about? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think. I mean, we live in a very like consumer Christianity culture. Consumerism is really the antithesis to the gospel. I, mean, I got this from Paul Lewis Metzger. He said that um, consumerism is the ability to get what you want when you want it, the least amount of cost to you. And he's like, that's that's really the antithesis of, of what it means to take up your cross and follow follow Jesus. So, you know, because we're such in a heavy, you know, the moment that the church doesn't supply our need, we can go to a different church. The moment that we're a Christian leader, that the church isn't supplying our need for platform, we can go create a new platform in a different space. 
And so I think I think kind of what you're describing is uh, a symptom of a much bigger problem. You know, if we can kind of be like, man, how can we be more formed into the image and likeness of Christ? I think that's a good direction for us to try to go into. All right. So I would really love to, if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about the work that you do on the the projects that you're involved with. Um, it'd be cool just to see kind of like the practical applications of that. It's a really great project that I've been involved with for the last three years with um, my friend Andy Crouch and you know, a few others who we're doing this. We've been doing this thing, a pilgrimage over the last three years, really trying to see um, what is it like to pilgrim through understanding the realities of slavery and how what Brian Stevenson says, slavery didn't end, it just evolved. And so we've been doing this thing called the Repentance Project. And as we were journeying, going to these different sites um, of uh, plantations or doing slave trail walks and going through museums and prayerfully discerning and seeing like what the Lord might have us to do to bring some repair to, to our world. We created a devotional called the American Lent to go through our Lenten season. Uh, we've done this uh, for the last two years together in a small group of about 30, 20 to 30 folks. And then um, we have now releasing, releasing it and kind of gone through an editing process, cleaned it up. And, and this year, 2019, the 400 year commemoration of the first enslaved people to come to the United States. We're inviting people around the, the country to engage um, in the American Lent this year. So you can find out about that at repentanceproject.org and uh, check that out. Well, thank you, David, for engaging these very challenging, at times heady topics to talk through. We're glad that you could bring your insight into all of this. For people who have feedback for us, please, we invite you to leave it to us either over email. You can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Everyone who listens to the show regularly knows that it is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine, and our March issue just was published a couple days ago. I know we have a bunch of different things in here, but we actually have an interesting science piece I know that um, had caught Mark's eye when he was reading through the magazine to prepare it to go to print. What was it about it? Do you find it interesting? Yeah, it was called Restoring the Jordan, which the Jordan, that's the Jordan River. And uh, there's a number of groups. It, this uh, article highlights one in particular that are trying to bring life back to the Jordan River, which in some places is nothing but a small piddling little stream. In other places, it's just a polluted a polluted river because of uh, the agriculture uh, uses uh, in the area. And I guess it, it, uh, what it harkened back to was a trip I took to Israel two or three years ago now, in which we visited one of these projects that is trying to reclaim the Jordan River so that it might be a, a healthy, full river again. And I just think that's an interesting intersection between our concerns for the environment in general, which most Christians seem to care about the environment, and how it intersects specifically with something that's highly symbolic and metaphorical and historically important for us. So I don't know. I just think it's an interesting project. It's an interesting challenge uh, because they're not they're not idealists in the sense of saying, oh, let's just get rid, all, get rid of all the farming and let's just do this or that. Uh, they're actually trying to work with, you know, there's a number of nations that are bordering on the Jordan River. You just can't make unilateral decisions about it. You have to take into consider political and economic and social uh, issues all the while. So it's a very challenging work, a very important work. 
uh, a very interesting work in my mind. And so we have a short news story on it that I think readers, I think, will find very interesting. Yeah, the news story is called Restoring the Jordan, and I recommend that you read it. I think you will find it interesting. You can do so by getting a copy of our March issue. It is online right now and is available to subscribers. We also have the print version. If you want the print version or if you want to become a subscriber to read it online, you can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. We are doing Precious Moments right now, which is when we have a chance to hear what is bringing joy to everyone's lives. Mark? Well, um, related to a story that's demanded a lot of our attention recently, uh, Harvest Chapel, James McDonald. Uh, I had to write a on-the-spot editorial one afternoon when we decided we needed to make comment on it this last week. And, you know, when you're rushed to write an editorial, you don't necessarily expect to do your best work. But it has to get up. It has to get up immediately. It was uh, wisely edited by our editorial director, Ted I think you Ted wrote Olson. in, like, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> well, it felt like it, yeah. Yeah, and, kind of a good writer. Um, what, I, what this precious moment is, is that just the, the, the positive responses we received from it. I, I don't, as I said, I won't take all the credit because Ted did an extraordinarily good job of editing it. You know, I, I act like a, a hardened journalist who is used to people casting slings and arrows at me, but I'm also a human being that when I do something well, I do like to hear about it. <laughs> so the precious moment is it's, it's a, it is nice to be appreciated for something you've, you've done. So that's, that's my precious moment this week. Just emails from all over the country of people saying that it was an appropriate thing to do and we did it well. So if people want to get emails from you, though... Well, they can subscribe to the Gallery Report, G-A-L-L-I, ChristianityToday.com slash the Gallery Report. You can subscribe. It's a weekly newsletter in which I highlight links to articles and comment on them. And then often my readers will uh, reply with agree, disagree, or here's another link you might want to consider. It's just a, turning into a little bit of a community of sorts in a distant sort of way, but still a lot of fun for me, a lot of fun for them. Awesome. So you can get Mark on Wednesdays and on Fridays, podcast and galley report. All right, David, do you have something that you want to share of a, of a highlight from the past week? You know, highlight for this past week was um, for the last nine years, I've been working on a, uh, the urban oxology songwriting internship, which is like a, a, a discipleship cohort. And it was really um, beautiful last Sunday. Urban oxology, the band was doing a gig in Wisconsin and the people that were leading worship in the church who were alumni who were uh, leading worship and, and did a tremendous job. And it was just really cool seeing generations of generations of people who, uh, who are disciples who get a vision and, um, and are now starting to have physical children of their own. And so that was just a thing that really warmed my heart this week seeing kind of when you're doing something for, a little bit of time seeing fruit from that. So that's been really great. That's awesome. All right. As we've mentioned a couple of times now, you do, you're involved with a lot of different projects. If people want to follow those online or on social media, where would you point people to? I'm terrible at social media, but um, I would say uh, one, go to airbond.com, A-R-R-A-B-O-N.com. Uh, go to urbandoxology.com. Um, and I say get on those two newsletters and follow Airbot and Urban Doxology on the social media handles. Okay, we can do that. All right, my precious moment is that I saw a documentary called Minding the Gap last Saturday, and 
Mark, I really think you need to see this documentary. I know that you care about the discussions that people are having in the 21st century about masculinity, and this is a extremely interesting Oh, yeah, look at I would this. be interested in that. It's profiling three teenagers slash early 20-somethings who are skateboarders. Um, they live in Rockford, Illinois, which is about two hours away from Chicago. And one of the skateboarders who was like one of the main subjects is actually the person who is telling the film. He's the filmmaker himself. And so um, this film is actually up for an Academy Award for Best Documentary of the Year right now. And it's available on Hulu. I know I'm not supposed to plug it for everyone, but you can get it right now, I'm trying to say. There is a lot of profanity in it, but I think that is kind of to be expected if you profile this demographic. Other one than that, I think the movie covers a lot of different issues. And if you've been someone who's been concerned, I guess, that in some of these like masculinity discussions that they can maybe lead to a place where we end up like writing too many people off or just kind of discarding them for when they've done things that we don't agree with or don't allow. I think this film is an interesting kind of rebuttal about how to deal with people who do things that hurt other people, but not wanting to necessarily expel them from communities. I don't know. Maybe Mark will watch it and be like, I didn't have that reaction at all, but I hope he's. Well, that's the nature of the conversation right now. And I think we should be having a conversation rather than simply dismissing each other for our views. Yeah. Which is why I think showing it in the, in a documentary form when you know, those people are real, right? Yeah. You care about them over the course of the story is a powerful medium. So if you want to see that, it's called minding the gap. And I have really just been glad that I saw that film. People can find me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. I did want to mention a couple things before we close. One of them is that we are doing transcripts of our conversations. And that's a really exciting thing. We hope that you get a chance, you know, if you've been wanting to read all the different ways that Mark and I interrupt each other. Um, <laughs> and make fun of one make another. Fun of one another or don't, I don't finish my sentences or whatever. If you're actually looking for maybe like intelligent points that we made as well, this will hopefully be a great tool for you. You can do that by going to the Christianity Today website and going to basically where we have a list of all of our past quick-to-listen episodes. So they are on christianitytoday.com slash ct slash podcast slash quick to listen. And there's hyphens between quick to listen. Yeah. So if you're someone who's used to getting our show via the episode description on our website, you'll find the transcripts there. If you usually get it through your podcast app, you're going to have to go to the Christianity Today website to get the transcripts. I also just wanted to say that we will be replacing Precious Moments with a new segment that looks at all the things that are good, true, and beautiful, particularly with the church today. And so similar to Precious Moments, we are going to be sharing, me and Mark will be sharing it with this. Our guest will as well. Um, but we will also want to hear from you about the ways that you've witnessed the church recently acting in a way that you feel lived up to those values. Um, so you're welcome to call us at 630-384-7333 and leave us a voicemail. Everyone else, you can record a one to two minute voice memo and email it to us at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And if you are too shy to put your voice out there, you want one of us to read it instead, you can just send us an email with this as well at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. So figure out what platform is best and listen to us there. Thank you, everyone, who rates and reviews the show, though, on Apple Podcasts. We truly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.
This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.